everybody, this is Jacob Graff coming at you with a new podcast about the coronavirus as part of Eastside's ongoing coverage of the coronavirus and its effect on the world and our school and our community. So I want to talk about a little bit of a different topic with you today than most people have been referring to when they discuss it, not social distancing, but more about how the coronavirus will shape the future of the world as we know it, right? We haven't seen a virus like this in a long time, not since H1N1 or the Spanish flu, where we really see this level of high levels of transmission between peoples over continents and between countries, and even in isolated communities. So this so this is a bigger issue than most people want to make it out to be. And so, but companies are realizing that more and more and with much more intensity than they have been in the past. And so now we want to focus on what are companies going to do about it in the future and what are we as people, how are we going to change fundamentally as a result of this coronavirus? So Axios, the news source, wrote an article posted on March 7, 2020, about how the coronavirus will shape the future as we know it, right? And they list five major things. And so I want to just discuss those and go a little bit more in depth than they talk about, but they have some really good ideas that I thought I want to share with you guys. The first thing is that remote work is going to become much more common, right? So we know that people work at home already. Um, Families do it. Mothers do it. Fathers do it. It is very common already. But now that we see if companies are able to find out that their productivity does not decrease dramatically enough to offset offset the costs of real estate or in-person firmware, then we will be clearly aware that at-home working is a much more efficient use of money and time for companies and for people as a result of this coronavirus. So we've seen companies like Zoom being utilized by communities, colleges, universities, and corporations to connect their personnel to their managers and to their clients in order to funnel those communicative messages through the normal channels, right? But that used to only be possible at offices. Now, with the rise of this technology and video conferencing, we now have the unparalleled ability to work 100% from home. And companies will see this and they'll think, why do we need to spend millions of dollars renting office space in the middle of New York City or Philadelphia, Los Angeles or Chicago when people want to work at home, they enjoy working at home because of flexibility, and they are equally as productive when they're doing so? It's a very interesting question to pose. I believe, because we have an established mode of business, which is the employee commutes into the office, they stay there nine to five, and then they come home and work on the rest of their day. But if we could eliminate those times of travel and allow people to work at home, well, doesn't everybody win then, right? So we already know that video video conferencing traffic in North America and Asia has doubled since the outbreak began, according to Kentuck, a global provider of network analytics. But we see firms like Twitter and Facebook who are encouraging or requiring their employees to work from home, right? This is for two real reasons, to spread the slow of disease and to prepare for the worst. Offices are closed across America because of the in-person risk of transmitting the coronavirus when you are asymptomatic, right? But the biggest question is, is that business leaders who are always looking to cut costs no matter what are going to see this and think, well, we have an opportunity here. We have an opportunity to save money and to increase people's happiness by working at home. And so what we plan on doing is by eliminating that commute and allowing people, 
if they have the appropriate technology and infrastructure, such as we've seen in Cherry Hill with the rise of the computer drives, because many people do not have the appropriate infrastructure, whether due to socioeconomic standards, geography, or other factors like that. So it's going to be a concern for corporations who have thousands of people worldwide to connect everyone on a same company intranet and infrastructure. But this is a question that companies are posing right now. And personally, I believe that the rise in um, at-home work will will drastically increase as a result of the coronavirus permanently, not just short-term, no. There will also be the second point that I want to that I want to bring up is that supply chains. The supply chains are very dependent on China at the moment. We know that China is a hub of manufacturing for both high quality and low quality products. But the biggest core question for companies like Apple is if China is the scene of another virus outbreak later, later in time, let's say. What is going to happen to their supply chain? They will lose billions of dollars in market cap and pay for their employees. Luckily, corporations like Apple are already rich and flush with money, so this won't be a major concern for them. But for lower, less wealthy corporations, even small mom-and-pop businesses, it is an important question for them that if they buy their products from China and their business is shut down or trade is restricted because of disease fears, what's going to happen to their businesses? So we're going to see some diversification in terms of where supply chains are located and in what parts of the world. So I believe personally we will see a rise in South American business change, such as those in Brazil and those in Mexico, because these corporations, these manufacturing plants for a while have been relatively dormant with the growth in China, corresponding to a huge rise in GDP as time has gone on. But now it is very, very interesting to see that if China is ground zero for manufacturing and a virus outbreak, well, manufacturing is going to go to zero. There is a huge risk if manufacturing is not to continue and the virus spreads dramatically. So changes that may have been delayed until the next recession are going to happen right now. So we will see a decoupling out of China. Hopefully we'll see that rise back in America and increase American prosperity all the same, paying workers higher wages, realizing that there's a supply and demand where workers don't want to come in. So we have to pay them higher wages to come into work. So hopefully we'll see that result, um, by the way. But for big-time tech corporations specifically, those like Google and Microsoft and Apple, as mentioned before, we will see a drastic decrease in the amount of t- supply chain uh, factors that are based in China rather than spread across the world. Third, um, we've already begun to see this in D.C. today, is that we will have much more partisan politics. Partisan politics are not going away, everybody. I know everyone wants to say that partisan politics is just a sign of the times right now. It's a symptom of Donald Trump in office, a very divisive president. But what we have to figure out right now is that the parties are very, very polarized and they're not getting any less polarized. Usually it's these national emergencies that bring us together, right? Think of 9-11. But even in 9-11 with Bush, you saw that people people came together as one. They came together as New Yorkers or as Americans to fight against terrorism. We declared a war on terror and Americans were vastly for it. However, right now we're declaring a war on coronavirus and there is widespread divisiveness over what is going on, if it is effective enough, are we doing enough, and has the response been 
on time? Or are there reasons why the response has been delayed? And is that our parties and our individual partisans at fault for that, right? One example of this is the national pandemic officer on the National Security Council. Um, John Bolton, a former administrator in Trump's organization, administration, I mean, sorry, took that position off the National Security Council about two years ago. The Trump administration was also briefed on the impact of a possible flu that would demolish the world's population when they when they got into the inauguration phase. These were all ignored or partisans taking about. And so we can see that the appropriate preparation has not been taken before the coronavirus has broken out. And as a result, we are behind other countries in terms of our preparation. There are a lack of test kits for citizens who feel that they are impoverished, can't afford them. Meanwhile, the richest citizens in America have access to test kits whenever they want to get them or however they want to get them, even if they don't have coronavirus and they're not feeling like they have coronavirus. So we have a big issue here in the fact that there are partisan politics at play and that that is going to decrease the effectiveness and the efficiency in which our federal government responds to this newfound health scare. On that same note, we already see how governments like, like the U.S. and even in France, Italy, and Spain, they have utilized the coronavirus as a call for tightening borders, right? A common rallying cry for border tightening is that it prevents bad people, bad ideas from getting into countries. Now we actually have a legitimate invisible enemy. And so people think that with a lack of people movement, which is the basis of the social distancing movement, right? People think that, or governments say that, if we restrict people's movements across borders, then it decreases our risk. And that may be true, but the question is, is this going to be a temporary measure or is this just an excuse for a more permanent border wall or a restriction on the movement of people across borders? And so populism, as a result, is going to flourish as the coronavirus spreads across the world. We're going to see people rise up for their own countries and feel that if their own countries come before anyone else, but this is not a one-country virus. This is a destructive world-ending force that if the appropriate precautions are not taken, people will die. The most vulnerable in our communities will die. And that is what we have to take care of first, not engage in partisan politicking. We see this, this change of mindset, right? This belief that one party is doing it better or one party isn't doing it well enough where it's already politicized in the United States. An online survey posted says that 70% of Republicans believe that the nation is prepared, while only 35% of Democrats do. Now, where does that discrepancy lie, right? Who is reading what? Where are they reading it from? What sources are they calling it out? On Twitter, it would be painfully obvious to check a conservative Twitter account and see that here are, the, here are the preparations that the Trump administration has been implementing since day one. Here's what they have done. On the Democrat side, you will see that they have said that this is we have not been doing enough. It's that none of this is enough. There's not enough money being spent. There's not enough preparation, and there's not enough resources to calmly combat the virus in the most effective and efficient way. The craziest thing about this virus, though, is the fact that in China, it has only been the number of cases has been decreasing because of 
truly extreme measures taken. People have to sign out of their homes. Very few people can leave their homes. In the United States, as a country of liberty, that will never happen here. We will not allow that to happen. But as a result, we have to be prepared to take the risk that this virus will spread fast. And so as a result, we will see that this is going to be around for the long haul. And so nastier politics is going to be a part of that in the long run, as much as we as much as we hate that idea, and in the short run as well. The final thing I wanted to talk to you guys about today is the idea of science, the rapid response of science and the and the pharmaceutical industry in response to this virus. I think we'll see in the future that this virus has prepared our pharmaceutical industry to have a rapid response team or multiple teams working on solutions to the problem as fast as they occur. Right. We have only had this virus for about three months now as a notice. Right. It has existed, but it has stayed pretty low key for the first month of it. And then it has vastly exploded in an exponential pattern, which is what scares most scientists. However, there have been rumors that Israeli companies, German companies and American companies have have been at work on the virus. In fact, just yesterday, it was announced that the first in-person trial of the virus has commenced in Washington state, where the virus has had a um, really a ground zero in the United States, right? So it was an interesting aspect to point out in that the big pharmaceutical companies who many people rail against for outrageous pricing and really just aggressive marketing campaigns, where they have the ability now to make a virus that will help the world, but at what, at what cost? L- literally, at what cost? How much will it be priced at? Is it going to be like like surge pricing, where if there's limited resources, companies can charge as much as they want? Or are we going to allow them to do that? So that's an interesting thing is that I think the government now is going to have to figure out whether they want this virus to be an exemplar for the future in how government manages prices during during viruses and world pandemics, or if we're going to allow the free market to to persevere and say that, hey, if these companies have this money and they are engaged in this process of entrepreneurship and innovative and R&D, then we will see that they can charge whatever price they want because no one else is doing it, right? So again, scientists, for example, at Stanford University developed a diagnostic test, according to Axios, for the novel coronavirus that can deliver tests as little as 12 hours, which is less than half of the speeds of the current models. That would increase the response of the test, but not the number of tests in addition. So we will also see that manufacturing, on the same note, we will have a rapid response increase in manufacturing possible in the future because manufacturers know that in this time of virus, they have to make the most popular products for consumers and the most needed products at that time. There's no need to make so many Cheetos right now if you can make syringes to inject inject serums or other uh, medical facilities of that nature. So it is a really interesting thing to feel that with this coronavirus, we will actually see in the future a faster science, That very simply put. And that, I think, is going to be one of the biggest, most important long-term effects of the coronavirus on this country. And so I feel like if we can realize that this together is going to make our country better in the long run, then we can think about to make sacrifices in the short term to ensure that that is the possible. But if we don't make sacrifices like social distancing and, uh, and, and other assorted preventative actions, then these four outlines, 
that, that I just described to you, these four possible innovations in the future will never occur because our country will be so changed that we cannot predict what is going to happen in the future. Thank you for listening, everybody, and tune in for more Eastside coverage on Anchor and Eastside Online. Thank you and have a great day.